it's a familial relationship that I think is growing more and more day by day between Redeemer and Lakeside Presbyterian. So I offer greetings from Lakeside. Know that we love you, we pray for you, and we certainly hope to see you continue strong in the Lord. Our text this evening is Malachi 2, verse 17, and we'll end at 3.5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Thus endeth the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your most holy word, and we rely on you like babes for our spiritual meal this evening. Holy Spirit, help us, feed us, comfort us, we pray. Amen. If you had taken a walk down where Highway 17 lies at the moment, um, from the north to Georgetown, South Carolina, and let's say two centuries ago, you would have seen Africans and African Americans working in fields, probably rice fields, and they did not own these fields, and they weren't paid for their work. You would have seen some men wearing shackles of various sorts, some masks that would prevent them from eating the food that was there, especially if they worked in the um, the sugar cane field. They had some good news. Emancipation happened. 
And some of the survivors were able to work land. They were given land to work, but that land was taken away from them. During Reconstruction, they had some mortgage dues. They were able to work in the government for a season, and that right was taken away as well. They had the right to, to vote. That was taken away or made very difficult. They owned businesses on Main Street, and that was taken away or made incredibly difficult. And then you end up in the Jim Crow area, and we'll stop there. And if you can imagine with me this scenario, and perhaps in the background you should know that Georgetown was a port where um, Huguenots came in, and the Quakers were there, and Methodists were there, and Baptists were there. These are people who had heard some version of the gospel, and they did a lot of good work for the communities. But if you were to stop and ask any of them, these people working in the fields, this question, what do you think about the justice of God? I'm willing to bet more than one of them would give us what we should call an atheistic, atheist answer. But we wouldn't be confused as to why they gave that answer, right? They would give an answer that's called that's wearisome. And I mentioned that because I just want us to put our heads in the right space because it's easy to read passages like this and not feel the weight of the Israelites' cry. They're wrong, right? But it is a weighty plea to the Lord. It's not frivolous. It doesn't come out of thin air. If you were speaking to someone suffering like the Israelites or these men in the field or even Christians who have been persecuted, be it in a third world country or wherever it is, what would you say to them when they're struggling with the justice of God? When you are going through trials, what do you say to your friends? The good news is, is this, and I'm not going to develop this point because I think it's quite clear. This is the main point of the passage. Verse 5 of chapter 3. The Lord says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. If you are someone who becomes easily discouraged or discouraged at all by evil in this world, or even the persecution of Christians in this world, or even the, just the trials that Christians go through, this text is offering you great comfort and great hope. The Lord will be a swift witness against the wicked. And what I want to lay before you is how do we respond? I want to show you how we can respond by this text. First, we can proclaim his preparations, the Lord's preparations. Second, we, excuse me. Second, we continue and what the Lord has given us, we continue in righteousness. And thirdly, we wait for the judgment day. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. 
You have wearied the Lord with your words. The word you have wearied can be found in one other place. It's Isaiah 43. And Calvin has a very neat way with words. And so he gives us a, a very smooth transition, uh, translation here. Um, you have saddened the Lord's spirit. But you say, reading now, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So, in their complaint, there, there are two accusations, accusations here. The first, the Lord delights in evil, which we know, and they know, is flat out wrong. It's a lie. The second accusation is that the Lord is absent. They also know that's a lie. The problem is, there's plenty of examples throughout Scripture where those two statements might seem to be true. So if you were to turn to the Psalms, let's say, you would likely see David uttering something that would resemble um, a similar sentiment. And you should know that the, the chief difference between when David utters his laments about the evil in the world and when these post-exilic Israelites utter their complaints is, is the audience. These Israelites are grumbling amongst one another. Oh, look, the Lord didn't show up again. Look at the evil over here. Look at the evil over there. Where is the Lord judging evil? Didn't he say he was righteous? Didn't he say he hates evil? Why hasn't he judged it yet? And they're talking amongst their friends. But David, David goes to the Lord directly in prayer. I think that's the key difference between the two. David goes, takes his complaint straight to the Lord in faith. These Israelites grumble amongst themselves. And so we want to make sure we don't do that. Um, we should acknowledge that these words are absurd. Indeed, children, God does not delight in evil. If you turn to Romans 3, um, verses 5 and 6, you'll see just how illogical this line of thought is. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Since God is the supreme judge. He must be good. What we ought to do, I think it's laid out right here, and Malachi may be the first to show us this playbook, but I don't think so. But we'll just go with Malachi for today, since that's where, where, where we are. Malachi proclaimed the work of the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. I'll give commentary, and then we'll, we'll backtrack. This messenger, as we know from Matthew 11, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. 
I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And this preparing the way shows that there's, there's something preventing, you know, uh, transportation or, or, or something to, to come to these people. There's something in the way. There's something cluttering the, the ground. And, and we know that these things are self-centeredness, spiritual lethargy, and unrighteousness. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly, and this means just without announcement, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What a beautiful sentence here. Note, it's possessive. It's not just a temple. It's the Lord's temple. And what happens at temples, a host of things, but the most important thing is sacrifices made at the temple. So when the Lord comes to his temple, and you have a promise of the Lord coming to the temple, well, what, is he, what is he doing? Well, we, being on this side of the cross, know that the Lord goes to his temple to lay down his life as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so this is what I'm proposing for us, I'm presenting to all of us to, to do. When we see evil in the world, I want you to proclaim this, this message. Look at what the Lord has done, is what you ought to say. He said John the Baptist, as the greatest of all of the last of all the, the prophets up to Christ. And then one greater than John the Baptist comes, Jesus Christ, who makes sacrifice for you, makes sweet intercession for you on your behalf on the right hand of the Father. And so... When evil prospers, we ought to proclaim what the Lord has done. When justice seems absent, proclaim what the Lord has done. And when God draws near to you, what a privilege it is, how sweet it is, the Lord chooses to draw near to us. Proclaim what he has done. Proclaim the preparations of the Lord. Secondly, since the Lord will be a swift witness against the wicked, we persevere in righteousness. Look with me at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. In other words, no one can stand his ground before the Lord on the day of judgment. No one can pass the test that is laid before you on the day of judgment. But the purpose of the Lord's test on the day of judgment or the purpose of the Lord's testing 
before the day of judgment isn't to destroy you, but to purify you. The truth is, man before purification cannot stand, but the Lord loves you, and he will purify you. The process of making gold is a very simple one, the way they did it back then, but it was effective. You see, the the gold was put into a crucible, just a container that could withstand very high heat, set aflame to at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and then poured into a container. And then all of the filth, all the things that were impure would come to the top. We're invited to imagine ourselves as that gold first put into the crucible, impure. It can't reflect the image of Christ because it's, it's too impure, it's too dirty, it's too filthy. But if you love sanctification, if you're a Christian this, morning, this evening, you love the work of sanctification. You want that flame set upon you. If you're that bar of gold, you can imagine children being hot Outside in 95 degrees is very uncomfortable. But the gold is set aflame to something like 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's rigorous. But it's so that you would bear the image of our Creator. And that's the beauty of the purification process when you're making gold. That you, you have this thing and it's ugly. And then after a while, once it's pure, you look into it, you can see your reflection. Christ lifts us up and says, on the day of judgment, where we're made perfect in holiness, ah, yes, he bears my image. This is good. And that's what we desire. That's what we pray for. That we would bear the image of Christ and that we'd be pleasing to God. So then how do we persevere in righteousness is is the question I ask you. First, I submit, you simply rest in Christ's nature. You see, Christ doesn't purify us in a, in a distant manner. But don't you remember that Christ, too, was placed into the crucible? The only difference, and it's a pretty big difference, but, but, but he went into the crucible when it was time to look for impurities. In Christ, none was found. But he went into the crucible. And he knows how difficult it is to be in this world and enduring the temptations and the trials and the persecution of this world. Secondly, we persevere in righteousness by God's refining fire. It's not a refining fire that just comes out of nowhere. But he is the fire. He is the one purifying you. He, we, we have good language for this. It's, at first, it's regeneration. He gives you new life. And it's sanctification. He works out all of the sin. It makes you more and more into the likeness of Christ. Christ is the one applying the flames to us, if you will. 
And then the result is this. We persevere in righteousness by bringing offerings in righteousness to the Lord. As that gold gets shinier and more lovely moment by moment, we continue to bring a more and more lovely gift unto the Lord. So since the Lord will be a swift witness against the wicked, we proclaim the Lord's preparations, we persevere in righteousness, and thirdly, we wait for the judgment day. Look at verse 5. Then. Stop right there. Why wait for the judgment day? Because some of God's people aren't ready yet. Some of them, perhaps they weren't bored, but some of them, according to God's timing, isn't ready yet. You see, the word then shows there's a process that must take place. First, John the Baptist is sent. Second, God, by way of the Son, Jesus Christ, comes, dies on the cross, sheds his blood for us, dies for our sins. Third, the refining fire of trials with the help of the Holy Spirit is endured by the saints. Fourth, God's people bring pleasing sacrifices unto the Lord. Then, the Lord draws near for judgment. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We wait patiently because the Lord is patiently waiting for the Holy Spirit to convince his own of their sin and misery, to enlighten their minds and the knowledge of Christ, and to renew their wills. That by persuading and enabling us, we might embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. I know that many of us deeply desire to see the evil in this world done away with right now. But don't you trust our Lord more than you trust your judgment? The psalmist says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked. So I hear you. Oh, that... Lord, you would slay the wicked, says David. But then, in the same psalm, he says this. And if you know me, you know this is probably my favorite quote. I'll just rattle this off, mostly in context, most of the time. Um, The psalmist will say, God's knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot... Contain it. And in the same psalm, he goes something like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Put me in the fire, O Lord. May I be pleasing in your sight. Would you get rid of the impurities of my life? While we wait 
Just know that the Lord is preparing us for glory by his refining fire. Wait because the Lord is refining his saints. We wait for the judgment day because judgment belongs to the Lord. Verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. You'll see a pattern in the prophets, in passages that are similar. First, the Lord judges his people, and then he judges the wicked nations. We have that same pattern here. And we know that judgment belongs to the Lord simply by reading our confession of faith, right? We read the Westminster Confession. Um, and I didn't note which chapter this is in, but you should know it. This is from the Shorter Catechism. Christ's exaltation consisted in his rising again from the dead on the third day, and his ascending up into heaven, and sitting on the right hand of the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. It's the right of the Lord to judge the world. Therefore, don't you try to do it. Of course, there are contexts, right? If you're in the civil sphere, you have to administer justice somehow. But even there, you can't expect that any human judgment will ever fully pay for the wrongs done. Judgment, ultimate judgment, belongs to the Lord, my friend. Rest in that. Perhaps a better approach would be flipping to the last question of a shorter catechism. Sorry, it's not the last question, but it's towards the back where you, you look at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is, thy kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought in it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Why wait for the judgment day, friends? Because God will be a swift witness against the wicked. Look at verse 5b. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker at his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. When you see unrestrained evil in the world, take heart. The Lord sees all and will judge the wicked. And not much more needs to be said than that, does it? Because the Lord can, do, can judge the wicked in a perfect way. And when it is the time, the exact time, he's not going to have to send out a search team to, to round up the wicked. He knows where they are. And when it's time for judgment, they will stand before the throne of God and be judged. Therefore, take comfort that that burden no longer rests on you. It never did, and it never will. The Lord will judge the wicked. In conclusion, three thoughts. We ought to proclaim God's faithfulness throughout all of redemptive history. 
by sharing the gospel of Christ. Proclaim his goodness as seen in creation. It's a stating, even Adam and Eve. Go to Noah and Abraham and all those in between. And keep going all the way to the cross. And then keep going to all those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And tell those stories and show how the gospel of Christ is seen clearly in those. We persevered righteousness by receiving and resting in his work of regeneration and sanctification, living by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust the Lord's process for sanctification. He knows how to make you into his own image. Trust him and allow him to use whatever means possible to make that happen. Whatever trials you've gone through in your life, you can think of the worst ones here. Consider this. If the Lord could go back and remove your most difficult trial at the expense of your sanctification, would you take it? I wouldn't. And I know one day trials await me that will be incredibly difficult. And in the moment, I won't see clearly. But I don't trust in my sight. And Christian, neither do you. He'll sustain you. Thirdly, let us wait for judgment. Knowing that it will be a day of celebration for the saints. Because all of Christ's and our enemies will be destroyed. And we will enjoy eternal blessedness and the full enjoyment of God unto all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, you are the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are... most high in every way, that we trust you. And where our faith is weak, would you strengthen it? And where our heart gives way, would you reassure it through your Holy Spirit? Oh, Lord, how badly we desire to be made into your likeness. Would you continue that work? And help us to never be grievous unto you and your great and most holy name. Oh Lord, would you continue to illuminate the scriptures, make our prayers more fervent, cause the, the sacraments to be ever more beneficial for us, and the fellowship with one another to be sweeter all for the sake of your great kingdom, all for the sake of your great day, we pray. Amen.